<clears throat> Terrence McCartney <clears throat> has made the judgment that he believes that Jonah was the greatest preacher in the Old Testament. And this judgment is based upon two facts. One fact is that in the Bible, Jonah is compared with Jesus in regard to preaching. And that this judgment was made by Jesus himself. When we turn to Matthew 12 and verse 41, Jesus said that the men of Nineveh shall, shall stand with this generation in the judgment and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, a greater than Jonah is here. Jesus is comparing himself with Jonah. And naturally, he says he's greater than Jonah, and certainly was. The greatest preacher that was ever to be. But that's one of the facts why uh, Mr. McCartney thinks that Jonah must have been one of the greatest preachers in the Old Testament. A second fact for that judgment is... <clears throat> When we think about the scope of his responses, the effectiveness of his preaching, the effects of his preaching upon all who heard him, from the king all the way down, including their animals. God had told Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. It's a great sinful city that needs to repent. And that was the task that God gave Jonah. He was his prophet. And they believed him. Willing to repent. They even commanded that the animals not eat. They fasted. Don't give any food to the animals. Let them fast as well. Everybody, including the king, put upon themselves sackcloth, sat in ashes, and put sackcloth upon their beasts as well. Now, the philosophy or the psychology of fasting is to indicate to God we're humble. Lord, we've humbled ourselves before thee. You can see by the way we're dressing in the ashes that, that we're sorry for what we've done. And you can stop afflicting us from henceforth. And that's sort of the message. So Jonah was a great preacher. We cannot deny that. Last or a few weeks ago, we spoke about Noah being one of the best known characters in the whole Bible. And that was because of the great flood and the ark. Well, Jonah is also a man of notoriety throughout the world because of the incident with the whale, as well as his preaching. But it's not so much his preaching and his character that has given him this notoriety among the world, but the incident with that great fish that God himself prepared. The question comes along, and it's raised by a lot of people. Is this story about Jonah real? Is it historical? Did it really happen? Or is it just a myth, maybe an allegory? When I was a young man, I went to, uh, to a denomination with my sister and her husband. I, it was before I was ever a member of the church, or I wouldn't have gone. 
And in the Bible class, I had a young man. I'm sure he was just fresh out of their seminary. And he began the class by asking, how many in this class, it was a large class, young couples at the University of Oklahoma, believe that the story about Jonah is real? And I cannot remember what the response was. Maybe nobody's afraid to raise their hand. I don't remember. But he went on to say that no, the story about Jonah is just there to tell us something. It has a lesson or lessons that we can learn from it, but it didn't really happen. Well, that's what you'll get out of most seminaries. It's a liberal philosophy. And liberals do not believe in any of the miracles of the Bible. In fact, that's why they, they go along with evolution. They don't want to think about God creating everything. And there are some miracles in the book of Jonah. They don't want to think about the other miracles that we read in the Bible, like God dividing the Red Sea so the children of Israel could escape from Egyptian bondage and, and, and cross over on dry land, or about how God could feed the children in the wilderness for 40 years with just manna, or any of the miracles, even of Jesus or his resurrection. Now, if they discount all of those miracles, what about the miracles of Jonah? Well, they have to go out too. We think about the storm. That was a miracle, wasn't it, that God provided? What about the great, uh, well, the next thing would be the lot that was cast that pointed to Jonah as the cause of all of this problem they were having with that great storm. And then uh, the big fish, the whale that God especially prepared for this incident. And about the sparing of Jonah's life, even inside this whale for three days and three nights. And later about the, the gourd and its story. And I don't know if I mentioned all the, the miracles, but there are about a half a dozen in the book of Jonah. Well, we believe that they're all true because Jesus stamped it with his approval. We've already referred to verse 41, but let's back up to Matthew 12 and start with verse 38. There were certain scribes and Pharisees who came to Jesus and they said, Teacher, we would see a sign of thee. And Jesus' response was, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. But no such sign shall be given unto it but the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was in the belly of the fish or the whale, three days and three nights, so shall the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. Jesus refers to the story about Jonah as real, historical. And his approval demands our approval as well. We believe all of it. And so we see that a fundamental teaching of the book of Jonah by the Lord is the affirmation of his resurrection. He was going to be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. But what's going to happen after that? Well, he tells us elsewhere, he's not going to be there more than three days and three nights. He's coming forth. And that'll be the resurrection. In the catacombs of Rome, you can find tracings of early Christian art. A familiar drawing is Jonah and this great big whale. 
Well, the whale, as we've already indicated, is a symbol of the Lord's resurrection. But there's also another type of fish in these old catacombs. And it's a fish that symbolizes Jesus himself. The Greek word ichthus is translated fish. There are five Greek letters, and each of those five letters form an acrostic, or can be formed into acrostic, which means Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior. And that's why you'll see a fish on a bumper of a car, or people wear it as a tile of everywhere. Ichthus. Jesus Christ, of God's Son, Savior, is the proper order. Well, let's go back to Jonah and see at the beginning. Where God appealed to him and asked him to go up to Nineveh and cry out against this city. Now, we learn as we turn over to 2 Kings 14 and verse 25 that Jonah was a prophet of the ten northern tribes. Uh, we call it Israel. It was during the time that Jeroboam II was king, and he was king for some 41 years from one figure would be uh, 790 to 749. That's the 8th century. That's when Jonah lived. We're not told exactly what part, but we could say 775. That's a good round figure. He received this commission from God, go to Nineveh. But Nineveh, was 500 miles northeast of where he lived, and he lived in Galilee. And he didn't want to go. I mean, the distance probably was the least thing that kept him from going. Jonah is the only minor prophet, maybe the only prophet, that we, re that we read about in the Old Testament that was told by God to go to a foreign people and preach to them. He didn't want to go to these foreign people. Two reasons. He may have had more than two, but I'll give two. One reason is that this was the, the ruling empire of his day. Later on, well, 750, no, 853, when Ahab was the king, he and his allies went to Karkar, had a battle with uh, Shamanesha III. His successor, after his two sons died, uh, Jehu, paid tribute to the Assyrian king. And so they didn't like this. Then in 721, you may say 722, the ten northern tribes fell. Samaria, the capital, fell and was destroyed by the Assyrians. So there was this political hatred that kept Jonah from wanting to go and preach repentance unto these people. And the second reason I can think of is they were all Gentiles. We know the attitude of the Jews against all other nations, which means Gentiles, they're below us. God had a special relationship. God has a special relationship with us as Jews. Entered into a covenant relationship. And those folks are outside of that. So Jonah doesn't want to go. And so what does he do? He rises up and he flees from the presence of the Lord. Now it's hard for me to conceive of a prophet trying to flee from the presence of Jehovah God. I mean, they have the Psalms then. For example, Psalm 139, starting at verse 7. Whither shall I go from thy spirit? Or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. 
If I make my bed down in Sheol, which is the grave, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost part of the sea, even there shalt thy hand hold me and thy, lead me and thy right hand hold me. And yet Jonah thinks that he can flee from the presence of the Lord. There is no such spot. I don't think or I don't like to think that Jonah thought of Jehovah as the Jewish God that was limited to their land. I mean, the Egyptians had their God for Egypt. The Greeks had their God, or of course they had more than one God, but it was for their land. They were limited. But Jehovah's not limited. And surely one of his prophets should realize that. But anyway, the story is he rose up to flee from the presence of the Lord. Now, Jonah, why don't you just stay where you are? You really can't get away from God's presence, so why go to all the trouble of trying to flee? Well, we can't speak for Jonah, but we might speculate a little bit. Maybe he thought if he could get far enough away, that voice would make him so uneasy and so uncomfortable. His conscience said, go. I mean, do what the Lord says to do, but he didn't want to do it. And yet he didn't want to stay where he was. Maybe sometimes in our own personal lives, we're involved in something that's not quite ethical or right or scriptural or what the Lord wants, whether it's in business or in pleasure, and so we turn him off. And we try to flee, in our thoughts at least, from the presence of the Lord, just sort of like Jonah. Evil always makes a man want to turn away from the Lord. Remember in Genesis 4 and 16, we read about Cain after he slew his brother Abel. He went out from the presence of Jehovah and dwelt in the land of Nob. Out from the presence of Jehovah. Why do some men never come to worship God? Why do some men never open their Bible and just read God's Word? Why do some men and women, I'll include everybody, not kneel down in prayer to God? Because any thought of God in any avenue that may come to their mind, they don't want. Their first thought is to keep as far away from anything that reminds them of God. Let me read a couple of verses in John 3, 19 and 20. We look at this Wednesday night. Talking about Jesus being the light, coming unto the light, but those in the darkness didn't want to hear. And this is a judgment that the light is coming to the world. That's Jesus. And men love the darkness rather than the light. For their works were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, and cometh not to the light, lest his works should be reproved. And no one wants that. So here we have Jonah, trying to run away from the presence of the Lord. So he goes down to the sea coast. 
and I think the only natural sea coast Israel had, at least in those days, to Joppa. And this reminds us of uh, another Bible character who went to Joppa. Eight hundred years later, the Apostle Simon Peter was directed to go to... No, no wait a minute. Uh, Cornelius sent some servants to get Simon Peter, who was in Joppa. And while Peter was on the, the rooftop about time for dinner, he had this vision. The sheep, you know, the animals, clean and unclean and so forth. The lesson that the Lord was trying to tell Peter was, there's some Gentiles coming your way, and they're going to ask you to go with them. And you are to go, nothing doubting. The Jew would naturally doubt. God said, you go with the Gentiles, nothing doubting. He went. And what did he go for? When he got to the household of Cornelius, he preached to the Gentiles. The first one to preach to the Gentiles. But here is Jonah being commanded to go to the Gentiles, and he didn't want to go. So there's that contrast between the apostle Peter and the prophet Jonah. Jonah was trying to flee from preaching to the Gentiles. So when he gets down to Joppa, he's looking for a boat that'll take him as far away as he can think of. He's already thinking Tarshish. And so in our imagination, he comes up to the first boat in the harbor and he says, where are you going? We're going to Tyre. Too close. Goes to the next boat. Where are you going? Egypt. Too close. And you, where are you going? Egypt. Still too close. He finds one that's going to Tarshish. That's where he wants to go. Tarshish we're not certain about, but generally people think that it was in Spain. In the western edge of the Mediterranean Sea. 2,000 miles away. He's already 500 miles away from there, and he wants to get farther, farther away. So he says, I want one ticket, a one-way ticket to Tarshish. Well, it wasn't long, we, we don't think, but we have a question about it. And when he got out on the boat, and the boat took off with the evening breeze, that God sent this terrific storm. It was a great tempest. Now, the reason why I say that uh, it seemed like it would have been right away, God wants Jonah to go up to Nineveh. You're not going to wait around, and yet, later on in the story, when he's swallowed by Jonah, I mean, Jonah's swallowed by the whale, he's in the heart of the whale, how long? Three days and three nights. Was the whale that far away from the coast of Israel? Had he swam all the way there, or was he just sort of playing around so he'd have to remain in his stomach, that is Jonah, three days and three nights? Well, that's a question just to think about. It really doesn't matter. But God sent this great storm. And where was Jonah? Well, he went downstairs and went to sleep. But when the storm became so severe, all of the mariners prayed to his own God. It's been said that you'll never find an atheist among sailors or mariners. Maybe some wicked men. You've heard the expression, curse like a sailor. Well, but there was not a, not a one, not one atheist in this group because it says that they all prayed under their God. They didn't know Jehovah God. Not yet. They learned about him. 
But those sailors that came from Egypt, they prayed to the gods of Egypt. And those from Greece, they prayed to the gods of Greece and so forth like that. But it didn't help. Because the storm just raged and raged and kept going. The wind blew and the waves beat upon that ship. And Jonah didn't wake up. Talking about sound sleeping, there's a guy that did it. Jonah. Could, couldn't be wakened by the creeks and the, the gear and the, and the ship. You know, as it would go up and down and up and down with those waves beating against it. Sound asleep. Well, the sailors were awake. And they were throwing the gear and their wares and everything overboard, trying to make the ship lighter so it won't be destroyed. The Bible says it's about to be broken up. And that's what caused them to turn to God and to pray. And I suppose then they decided they'd cast lots. Now, who among us is really responsible for this storm? It was unnatural. They had been through a lot of storms, but this seemed more than they had ever experienced. And I can imagine each one of the sailors thinking in his own mind, Lord, is it I? Am I the one responsible? One man thinks about some of his sins. He thinks about the man that he drowned, the businessman that he drowned in the harbor. Another sailor thinks about the woman that he stole some money from. Another sailor thinks about the young lady that he seduced in Egypt. And they're all thinking, Lord, is it I? Is it my life that's responsible for this storm and for these other men's lives? It looks like they were all doomed to death and had given up. But the, the captain thought about that passenger they took on board at Joppa. And they started looking for him and they found him down in the hole. And there he was all asleep, Jonah. And they woke him up and he said, you pray to your God. They'd all already been doing that. And then we read that they decided they'd cast these lots. Now, generally, that would have been just super, generally, it would have been superstitious for them to think that by the, the lot casting, if it pointed to this individual, that was the one that was responsible. But in this case, you know, Proverbs tells us about casting the lot in your lap, but it's the Lord that disposes of it. And that's the case here. The lot pointed to Jonah. And they turned to Jonah. They wanted to know something about him. One of the questions they asked him is, what is your occupation? Well, that sounds like an innocent enough question. You know, what is your occupation? But for Jonah, being a prophet of God, it must have been a question that pierced his conscience. Like a sword piercing your flesh. He's thinking to himself, I am a prophet of God. That's my occupation. God sends me. I'm his messenger. I am to proclaim his word to wherever he sends me. That's my occupation. And here I am running away from fulfilling my occupation. I can imagine how that question hit Jonah. What is your occupation? Well, sometimes... There might be circumstances in our lives where we need to ask ourselves, what is my occupation? What is my profession? Well, I'm a Christian. But does my life or my lifestyle 
square with my profession to be a Christian? Are there things in my life that are just not acceptable to God or not in accord with being a Christian? What is your occupation? What is your profession? Do you profess to be a child of God? Well, sometimes we need to ask ourselves that question. We notice another contrast here. We're thinking about two voyages, one in the Old Testament, this one, and another in the New Testament. They're out on the Mediterranean Sea. The one that we're comparing with Jonah here is the Apostle Paul. He has been taken as a prisoner from his land to Rome. He has appealed to Caesar. And on the way, there is this great storm. And they drift, and they're driven by the tempest for 14 days. They don't eat for 14 days. And then an angel of the Lord appears to Paul. And he tells the men, it's time to eat. That an angel of God, whose I am, whom I serve, appeared to me last night. Paul doesn't mind telling these people where he comes from and what his life is all about. Whose I am and whom I serve. And the angel says that you're going to lose the ship. But I'm giving you every man that's on the ship. There were 276 passengers and sailors and everybody. And because of Paul's presence, they were all going to be safe. Ship was going to be shipwrecked, but they were all going to reach safety on land because of Paul's presence. But what about Jonah's presence? The storm came because of Jonah. The lives of every one of them was in peril because of him. And so, is there ever a time when the example of you and me might be a peril to our family or to our workmates or our neighbor or friend or whoever, to the church? Do we keep our lives so on the path of holiness, the road of righteousness, that our example will not lead someone astray and bring a peril to their lives, like Jonah in this particular instant, or like Paul? <clears throat> and so Jonah tells them who he was, that he was fleeing from the trying to flee from the presence of the Lord. He says, what you need to do is just throw me overboard. Well, these seem like men of uh, common decency. They didn't want to do that. And they, they first tried to row back to shore. And that didn't help one bit. In fact, the tempest got worse. And they could see that wasn't the solution. And so they prayed. They prayed to Jehovah. And they said, it seems though, Lord, it's your will that we throw Jonah overboard, but we don't want to be held accountable. But it's, if it's your will, then we'll do it. And so after that prayer, they took Jonah, as he said, threw him overboard, and immediately the storm ceased. You know, when the wind ceases out on the lake, the waves keep going until gradually, you know, they die down. But like Jesus on the Sea of Galilee when he said, Peace, be still, everything was still. The wind stopped, the waves stopped rolling. And that's what happened in the case of Jonah. 
the waves stopped rolling. The storm was over. But Jonah went down. Let me read three places in the story of Jonah where it speaks about him going down. Four places, I should say. In verse 3, we read, this is chapter 1, For behold, Jehovah cometh forth out of his place. <clears throat> I'm reading from Micah, excuse me. Verse 3, But Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of Jehovah. And he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish and so forth. Then verse 5, then the mariners, the sailors, were afraid, and they cried every man unto his God. And they cast forth the wares that were in the ship into the sea to lighten it unto them. But Jonah was gone down into the innermost part of the ship and went to sleep. He went down again. Still in the first chapter, verse 15. So they took up Jonah and cast him forth into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. So they threw him down into the sea. And verse 17, And Jehovah prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. He went down into the sea, and then when the, the whale came along, he went down into the belly of the whale. Four times we read about Jonah going down. So he's swallowed by the whale, and then he begins to pray. Chapter 2 tells us about his prayer in the belly of the whale. Let me read verse 7. Jonah says, When my soul fainted within me, I remembered Jehovah, and my prayer came in unto thee into thy holy temple. Jonah, when did you start praying to me? When my soul fainted within me. When I was about to give up, I didn't know any other way to turn but to you, Lord. And that's when he began to pray. We talked uh, not too long ago about the Lord's trying to get our attention. Something happens and we find ourselves flat on our backs looking up and God has our attention. That's how God got Jonah's attention. He, Jonah forgot that God could go on the sea as well as on the land up to Nineveh. And he followed him, sent the storm, and got him back on his course. So he was swallowed, he prayed, and then we read that he was thrown up. Verse 10, chapter 2, And Jehovah spake unto the fish, and it vomited out Jonah upon the dry land. Now what happens? And the word of Jehovah came unto Jonah the second time saying. God gave Jonah a second chance. He says, I want you to go to Nineveh and preach the preaching that I tell you, that I bid you. I wonder how many second chances you and I have had. I mean, God's patience and God's long-suffering talks about more than one chance. He keeps putting up with us. He puts up with this. He puts up with that. But he hasn't given up on us. He gives us another chance. We think about Peter. He denied the Lord three times. And then he repented. Went out weeping. Had godly sorrow. And what did the Lord say to Peter? After that. 
feed my sheep. John Mark was given a second chance. He left Barnabas and Paul. He went back home. But later on, Barnabas gave him another chance. And Paul in prison later wrote to Timothy and said, When you come, bring John Mark with you, for he is profitable to me in ministry. How many second chances can we see in our own lives? Like Jonah and Peter and John Mark and other folk. So the word of the Lord came unto Jonah a second time. And this time he went. Preaching in Nineveh. And we've already talked about the response that he had. The people repented. Now, it says in chapter 3 and verse 10 that, well, let me read verse 10. And God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God repented of the evil, which he said he would do unto them, and he did it not. You remember the preaching? Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be destroyed. Well, they repented. And so God changed his mind. He did not destroy them. When we turn over to Matthew 12 that we quoted earlier, verse 41, that the men of Nineveh shall stand in the judgment and condemn... Excuse me. Uh, yeah, that's right. The men of Nineveh shall stand in the judgment and condemn this generation because they repented not. This says that they saw their works. God saw their works. Jesus says those works were repentance. People say, well... If you're baptized, that's a work. That's not acceptable. The Bible speaks about faith as a work of God. Repentance is a work of God. Baptism is a work of God. It's not a work of merit. And whenever by, when any time someone says, well, baptism is just a work, say so is faith and so is repentance, but they're all God's works. God saw their works. Jesus said they repented and Jonah tells us how they changed their ways. One other thing, in Jeremiah chapter 18, Jeremiah tells us that God says, when I threaten, when I warn, when I prophesy something good or something bad is going to happen and I change my mind, that's because those people against whom the prophecy has been expressed changed their ways. Verse 7, this is Fitz Jonah's case and Nineveh. At what instance I shall speak concerning a nation and concerning a king to pluck up and to break down and to destroy it, if that nation concerning which I have spoken turn from their evil, I will repent of the evil that I thought to do unto them. And then this fits Israel the other way around. And at what instance I shall speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plan it, if they do that which is evil in my sight, that they obey not my voice, then I will repent of the good wherewith I said I would benefit them. Now, therefore, speak to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Get them on the right track. So this case fits Nineveh. Jonah's sermon, eight words. You know, repent, 
Yet 40 days, you'll be destroyed. They repented. They turned back to God. Let me ask this question. Do the Ninevites condemn anyone here this morning? They repented at the preaching of Jonah. We have the preaching of Christ, which is much better. We know what it says. And if we don't respond like they responded in repentance, then they will stand up in the day of judgment and condemn us. If you're subject to the gospel invitation, remember how merciful and long-suffering God is, and Jonah spoke of that. That's the way God is. And he wants everyone to be saved. He sent his son to bring about salvation. So if you're subject to the gospel invitation, believing that he's the son of God, willing to repent of your sins, confess your faith, and be buried with him in baptism for salvation, then won't you come as together we stand and sing.